This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. You're listening to Drifter Sympathy on SBI Audio. This season is made possible through the generous support of Patreon subscribers. To become a patron, visit Drifter Sympathy on Facebook and hear more music at holysons.bandcamp.com. It's Rare Soundtracks 3. We're in Copenhagen, Denmark at Alex Hall's house. We just finished a huge European tour. Went through Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Turkey, Greece. And we're taking a little vacay at his place for about a week. And it's a perfect time. I'm not going to see him for months, so it's a perfect time for us to go over some of the soundtracks we picked up and some of the old history of us uh, falling in love with things that we shouldn't have. And uh, <laughs> the story kind of goes back to a tour about, I would say, nine years ago? It was in 2009. We realized in this one moment that, you know, the, the van itself is just this platoon, like, locked in a room that's on wheels, and everybody is kind of in these various states of... Uh, recovering every day from from hangovers and and whatever stress is going on back home that they're getting on their phones and and everything is uh, kind of this chaotic mess that you just push into the shape of a band you just throw yourself on stage and you make the best of it and in the middle of that we realized that having a song on consistently that was often absurd or funny uh, kind of glued the group together and gave the tour a personality. Often it's just a very dumb, ridiculous song that, that lends the tour some levity. Like on this tour we're in Belgium and we're all staying in this huge group room in, a, in an old farmhouse and I was going down to get some coffee and the older woman that was running the the farm and the B&B was making up some some eggs and was blasting the the radio. It just happened to be this Christopher Cross song that ended up just branding itself on our brains and becoming the tour anthem. fire up the van and pump it really loud and it just gave us this sense of optimism and hilarity for the setting of what can sometimes be you know a a struggle it's such an obvious device and everyone realizes it but it still brings this levity to each day somehow like if you start off that way everybody's just in a better mood like the opening credits of magnum pi or webster or something where yeah it's just that that day's episode and it becomes like this this template for ridiculousness and adventure and, and whatever happens that day 
And it's part of digging into old records where everything's flawed. You know, the technology is flawed, the people are flawed. It's caught like a fly in amber, and you just, you love what's wrong with it. The Christopher Cross song, it was an easy theme to integrate. The words, everything makes perfect sense to like trying to wake up again and do it again. <laughs> but it, <laughs> it's such obviously stupid, happy music. Like you can hear the producer in the room being like trying to like get everybody to be more upbeat. And, and but it worked. And here we are 30, 40 years later and, and it's making us happy for that day. Like they, they, they totally did their job. Yeah, it's like it's haunting the way he lies to the listener. He, yeah. he breaks down into the minor chords and he, and he talks about how I'm not going to make it out like I'm doomed. But then he doesn't have much time. He has two lines to be sad. It's a short bridge, yeah. Right. The third and fourth line, he says, and now, now we're on our way. He's got to flip it. And there's something so sad that he, he only gets one bridge to be to be honest for a second. Well, and to describe, like, <laughs> the the pitfalls of life. You know, he gets two lines to describe the challenges and sadness of life, and then it's back into this ridiculous, completely unrealistic anthem of success. <laughs> and you can see the, the champagne glasses <laughs> clinking. This entire like idea of integrating a theme song to the tour stemmed from nine years ago when we went on this one tour and had this Italian soundtrack. I think I'd actually been watching every Franco Nero movie systematically and came upon Street Law and thought it almost sounds like Franco Nero himself is singing this theme song which is sung in this really rough English. I mean, it sounds like someone who's just barely keeping down the alcohol into their stomach. <laughs> but and, who also doesn't speak English. Yeah. yeah. And and so it turns out that the, it's the DeAngelis brothers who made the soundtrack, and they go under this fake name, Oliver Onions, just basically to guard themselves from the absurdity of how bad they are at singing, I yeah. guess.
the entire concept of their singing style is so funny. They must have known it was funny. The choice of how to sort of put Franco Nero in his setting is pretty deftly achieved. And when they, when they mute their vocals and do instrumental versions of the same song, the street law theme, it's probably some of the best Italian music you've ever heard. Look is Goodbye up. My Friend on the same soundtrack? Yeah, it's Jesus. those are the two hits. And then there's some really killer instrumental breakdowns. Where he's like creeping around town. Like, there's a famous shot of him looking through the blinds. Looking through the blinds. Yeah, in the exactly. turtleneck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Investigating. Investigating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the, just the vamps, the little funk breakdowns, are so well uh, emoted and so minimal. It's, it's like kind of a genre unto itself. Like, yeah. Street Law is kind of like one of the ultimate Italian crevices. There's an entire genre of this stuff. It all seems related, it all seems sung by the same guy, um, yet somehow it's not. It's just some, some crevice inside of the mid-70s where the Italians really dedicated themselves to like, you know, sort of some amalgamation of American or British crime films. Street Law was a very strong contender, but there, there's many other soundtracks that have this vibe. Yep. One of Alex's favorites. Napoli Violenta, is that the one? The Franco Michelizzi score, and there's a song called Man Before Your Time. This guy has a little bit more of a boyish voice, and his English might be a little bit better, but the lyrics are still really awkwardly written. And Yeah, nothing's quite right. In other words, they read like they were Google Translated before Google Translate existed. You know, like, But of course it ends up being charming in its earnestness the, the way they're sort of like just just trying so hard with you know like ham-fistedly to express this like really sad like 70s cop reality i'm sure these films were, were important in, in like sort of bringing the news to people you know about what was going on but mm. but when we go to italy and we bring this over-focused knowledge on, on a dumb song like this, and, and it defines this town. You know, we experience the town within the lens of this film. It's a totally unrealistic way to, to bring your projection to a town, and people don't, people don't remember this stuff. People don't remember this music. It, it looms so large for us, but it really is forgotten. Yeah. No one sits around in Naples listening to this. No, not at all. It's it's considered uncool, old, like silly, and kind of uh, low tech and kind of bad acting. They don't really want to own it. Like a bad soap opera in the U.S., someone might come mm -hmm. over and start talking about Days of Our Lives, and we'd, or General Hospital would be totally confused. Yeah, trying to talk to you about the the Falcon Crest, the soundtrack. glory days. <laughs> yeah. Like some, some Italian guy coming to New York for the first time and with, with the Serpico LP or something, like expecting New York to look like that. Like sure. Th thinking that this is like looking at it, at it through this lens or something. But. Right, and we're twistedly enjoying some sort of vigilante mafia American sound through the refracted lens of them yeah. guessing what American music really feels like. Yeah. And we're getting off on it because we actually don't really like the American version of some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. We like their version. Yeah, exactly. A friend is not a friend. 
The entire addiction to digging through soundtracks is that you know you're going to encounter 90% of just straight up orchestral garbage for some, you know, Nicole Kidman vehicle. But you're flipping, flipping through, looking for that one strange synth-based record that, you know, like I got on this this trip called Battle Truck. <laughs> <laughs> just like you know a cheap moment where some weirdo got his one chance to you know flex his muscles on his weird analog sense in 1981 not a good soundtrack by the way do not buy it don't buy battle truck don't, don't get battle truck but but it goes without saying that you're you're sifting through and you're touching things that are not supposed to be good at least in your generation you know when we were kids we never looked in the soundtrack section. That was probably the most avoided section. And then, uh, speaking for myself, I think you've maybe phased out of soundtracks a little more. You uh, dig in uh, other areas lately, it seems like. The rewards are just so few and far between. But Understandable. I'll, I'm sure I'll come back at some point. But I still am a total sucker because there's that feeling when you hit the gold mine. Mm. Here's a good case in point. Is I would never watch a Van Damme film. I, I would never have the time to sit down and watch a Jean-Claude Van Damme film. 
But at some point, I found the Bloodsport soundtrack. You know, I'm not going to say it's great, but it exemplifies this feeling of like, well, when we were kids, this is exactly what we thought was super cheesy, uninteresting, at the time kind of glossy. And you look back now, and it's almost like lo-fi music. It almost sounds like someone with an amateur collection of, of synths recording at home. And that is like a cultural revelation. We're digging back, digging through the garbage, just like going to the bins and finding, you know, it could be a belt or uh, some suspenders that are actually really well made and have stood the test of time, but they go out of style for 15 years at a time. to be said about just drudging through and suffering through pretty terrible embarrassing music but you know you get so desperate looking for a sample I think you you will tolerate and tolerate is a good word mm-hmm. an amazing amount of ridiculousness especially because Lilacs and Champagne was built on this idea let's turn out things that aren't supposed to be turned out like they were embarrassing moments of someone's personal expression that would rather be hidden Mm -hmm. but then you're shining a light in a place that other samplers wouldn't want to go and it's 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 a it's a good stash to pull from because other people aren't going to want it you know we were just in turkey and i came very close to buying this terrible soundtrack for this movie called jocks This is a good example of someone who's got this Gary Newman kind of untrained sense of melody that's not going anywhere. It's embarrassing. They start to sing over-emoted things about inspiration. But there's moments where it's a very minimal, perfect, early 80s pop expression. If you could isolate pieces of the song, it would outdo a lot of the stuff that blew up, but they just didn't quite get the balance right.
producer of the film is forcing them to sing something specific to the film, mm -hmm. and it just becomes really awkward. It, it becomes about as genuine as an expression as like a hemorrhoid commercial. Supposedly, like all of the classic Tangerine Dream soundtracks were just stuff they had lying around. When they were that prolific and that good, people were just coming to them and they just let them pick something. Or they would like they say, "Well, I've got this," and they say, "Yeah, that, you know that 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 works well enough." Is that true? I think I, I definitely have. I remember reading specifically about Firestarter and and but and a couple of the others, and but I'm not sure about Sorcerer. of reevaluating your relationship with soundtracks of the past from your own youth is an uncomfortable feat, you know, trying to weed through and kind of reinterpret the things that scarred you. I rewatched Less Than Zero the other night, and it does stand up as a great film because its gravity actually succeeds. It's, it's pretty subtle. It's not, like, over the top. There's these little touches they give that lend it this really kind of seedy feeling. Often when a woman comes out of a room in the film, they'll wipe away some spittle from their mouth to, like, give it a seedy vibe. Like, what were they doing in that room? Now we, we live in a time of extreme gore, and you'd think Lesson Zero was kind of like the super dated St. Elmo's Fire bullshit, but it, it really conveys a feeling. Even if the acting is hollow at times, it conveys a correct feeling of how that character was truly struggling in their shallowness. Mm -hmm. But the soundtrack does not offer anything timeless. The whole thing is like poison doing I want to rock and roll all night. And just, just terrible shit. Like the, every scene that could really be spooky is kind of ruined by what people actually were listening to in 1987, which was garbage. Yeah, everywhere. The commercial aspect of it is pretty, pretty grotesque. I mean, it was just, it was just a way to slap a label on a really shitty mixtape, basically, of, of, of songs, you know, like B-sides and and songs that were already licensed and just and, and sell a million copies. Risky Business is a perfect example because that the most famous scene somehow became the Bob Seger song when he's in his underwear and socks and he slides in. Just take those whole breakfast yeah, off the shelf. Right. <laughs> no one really liked yeah, that song. Yeah. That scene is terrible, but it's realistic in the sense that maybe a kid looked that fucking stupid when they danced around their parents' living room when they're out of town. But it really doesn't feel good to watch. It doesn't stand up. But the but the Tangerine Dream songs lend that movie its atmosphere. you would buy when you're a kid like it was it was really confusing because you you know the movie meant so much to you and you're trying to like connect this shitty mixtape to the movie somehow and, and you, you work so hard at doing it and it just and it just never works you've got like, like you're just stuck with it you're you? stuck with it yeah and like, and like trying to figure out like what this shitty Lindsay Buckingham song it has to do with the Goonies or whatever it mm -hmm. was you know that and you, you don't you don't even know who these people are and you don't care you know like but then, of course, you know, like then years later, this this actually happened with Lindsey Buckingham. Years later, years later, you know, when I'm like 22 or something, I'm like, oh, that's the dude from the Goonies soundtrack. <laughs> it hurts when you come home from college and you're sifting through your old cassettes. You know, there's the first time you you owned a, a Sex Pistols tape. <laughs> there's the Police Academy of soundtrack, and it, it just is a blight upon your belongings because. <laughs> The detritus of that time just sticks with you. And at the time, it did mean a lot to you. Hey, 
Arnie, where are you going? Home. Look, Kyle, I got a boatload of stuff to do. I got a term paper due tomorrow and a history test. I got to help my father clean the cellar. And I have to do the dishes tonight. What are you doing? I'm going to get the guys and hang out at the mall. Let's go. Hey, Arnie, Kyle. Thought I told you guys no skateboarding in my district. This isn't skateboarding, Sergeant. This is carrying skateboard. This is skateboarding. As terrible as, as Police Academy 4 was. You sound so serious. Man. I know. <laughs> as dated and, and awful as Police Academy 4 was, it looms so large. In my life especially, it was 1984 when this came out. And David Spade, he's a teenager. He plays a young skateboarder. And the Bones Brigade, I believe Tony Hawk is his stuntman. And the Bones Brigade does all the skateboarding scenes. So honestly, that might have been what I saw before Back to the Future even. Wow. The only song I can remember is Winning Streak, apparently by a man named Gary Glenn, that I still sing while we're uh, loading out, usually most nights. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently Van Halen got hired to do a song for the, the Twister soundtrack, which is, you know, the, Crucial. The, the tornado disaster movie with Bill Paxton. <laughs> and Sammy Hagar didn't, he refused to read the memo about not making it too literal. And he came into the studio and was like, had this song written about like, going into the, the danger zone. Like, well, that's Kenny Loggins, of course. Yeah, yeah. But like, yeah. it was about a tornado. He, he's like, that's how this guy's brain works. He's like, well, it's a tornado movie. How would they write. care? <laughs> well, he got kicked out of Van Halen because because Eddie's the artist and Eddie understands that you don't have to make a literal song about a tornado. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like they'd had other problems. Eddie and sometimes. Sammy, they just they they, they couldn't uh, they couldn't agree on the Twister soundtrack. <laughs> he had to go. <laughs> wow. Yeah, was that a good story? Yeah, yeah. If you want to return to some serious music, we don't have to. Um, we can keep going. I don't remember like what's on the Superman soundtrack. I don't re retain that kind of information, really. A lot of this stuff that we obsess over now are actually films we've never seen. I don't think I've ever seen Shock. I think it's a drummer from Goblin, a couple guys from Goblin. We're in this other band called Libra that was signed by Motown, of all people. I have no idea why. They cut some kind of prog ballad records that aren't really worth recommending, but then made this one soundtrack that's super psycho music. It's, it's actually unhinged. They drop their classic goblin style funk.
The Italians seemed to rule over a very specific moment of 70s film music and bridging off of Goblin and into the, the composers that did a lot of the library music. Reno Di Filippi has a really solid record that's been reissued under the name Riflezi, uh, with the butterfly on the cover. I still am baffled by why the Italians seem to understand this moment so well. The British are the other competitors, for sure, in terms of this just stately, perfect pocket music with the ultimate orchestration and kind of low-down, dirty, street grime beats that don't get too over the top. They don't have too many horns. They pull back and they just throw down this kind of moody crime meditation. spending a lot of money and you're going to dip into library music, there seems to be colorations and pockets that are very specifically the most satisfying. You know, if you're going to go to France, maybe you want to stick with the minimal synth music. Are you going to go to Italy? You can go for like full band funk, but you, France, I wouldn't think of them for that. You know what I mean? For funk? Not for library. I wouldn't want that frequency. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a huge funk and breaks guy and I don't think you are either but like that, really. that's that's why the the English version of it is so has this economy to it they don't waste any notes they're not like a you wouldn't even call it funk like the beat yeah the beat doesn't bounce as much as it like struts yeah yeah, yeah. Their, their their version of it is, is especially like it's just more it's just more fun for me to listen to uh-huh. A good example is there was a kind of a super group of these UK library guys that had like uh, Dave Richmond and Harold Fisher who were, if you're into library music and you and you read, you know, re- read the back sleeves, you might recognize some of these names, but they, they had this kind of super group called Midas Touch and they recorded a good half dozen LPs for various library labels in the UK. One really, really good one is called uh, Melting Pop. on tour in Stockholm, Sweden and stopped off at this killer shop called Record Mania. Yeah. Their stuff was very uh, curated. It was all hand-picked. There was no just ordering anything. It was like each record was thought out for what they wanted to offer. Mm-hmm. 
I got this library comp that has some guys I'd never heard of. This guy, Tony Kinsey, really knocks it out of the park with a track called Kaleidoscope. This could keep a room feeling very good. We were DJing in Gothenburg and this this comp came in very handy because these tracks can kind of hold the room down while you're looking for the next song. You're set with, with a library record this good. Often when I'm DJing and I've, I've got to go take a break, make a phone call, or smoke pot by a dumpster, I'm pressed to put on a, a good 15-minute song that I can leave and not worry about. You know, even if it skips, it's going to recover itself. And I always put on Giorgio Moroder's Battlestar Galactica soundtrack because once you get into the track, you acclimate to it and you don't want it to end. Even though it's extremely repetitive and slightly boring it has this cd quality to it that makes you just think of uh, dirty things <laughs> when i'm playing it I, I always find myself fixated on what the drummer must look like as they're playing the hi-hat struts in a very specific way and the snare just drops perfectly but it's before mechanistic drum machines or anything it's, it's a real disco track but the drummer never does a fill. In 15 minutes, his only fill is just hitting the cymbal. The drummer has to know how to keep people dancing, and they have to know how to be totally egoless, and they're not trying to be tricky at all. They're just trying to keep a pulse going. It's a very selfless world.
I didn't really know that I would like disco music. I didn't think it was my thing growing up, obviously. But when you hear the right frequencies and it's not too over the top and it has that lazy, sleazy bounce, it's hard to deny the satisfaction level, especially with the like silky strings, kind of like stilettos, just like daggering over the drums, you know? One of the only things Alan Hawkshaw, the, the great British library composer, did outside of his KPM achievements was this kind of disco cash grab called Love Deluxe with these girls singing. It's actually the cover of um, Sleazy Listening, that episode. Oh, uh, okay. But it's called Here Comes That Sound Again, and it, it's just a slam jam ripper. I think probably my favorite Terry Riley record is actually a soundtrack. And I didn't, didn't even realize that it was a soundtrack until, until years later after owning it. Um, that it's, I didn't realize that it's a soundtrack to a French Klaus Kinski film. The English title is called Lifespan, and it's this insanely beautiful record. And I have to, I have to wonder that in the case of Terry Riley, if, if he was forced into a more commercial zone by doing a soundtrack, if that ended up a lot more fun for people like me to listen to, you know, all these decades later.
we were down in the Athens marketplace just below the Parthenon a few days ago and we actually went to this new record store that we didn't used to go to. You know how we would go down that inner first road that, that dips in through the marketplace and look down each alleyway mm -hmm. and there'd be these record stores kind of hidden off to the side. Yeah. Hidden between all the like tourist sort of junk and it's dangerous to just let the guys have free reign and tell you what they think you'll like. We had a kind of a disaster in Poland where the entire time we were in the shop, the guy just tried to sell us on like new wave Polish like synth pop garbage. And we just couldn't figure out how to get him to stop and get out of there. But in Athens, the guy behind the counter suggested that we check out this Yanis Markopoulos record. You want to bring home something from that country. You want to bring home something that actually is authentically an atmosphere that you experienced. You know, you don't want to just buy Canadian records in Greece. Even though Vangelis is known as a soundtrack composer, this record isn't a soundtrack, but it was the best way to bring home something that was actually authentically Greek in the sense that this woman, Irene Pappas, is singing what sounds like totally traditional ancient melodies, but he's backing it up with these huge open kind of synth atmospheres that is super easy to put on and listen to at home when you're actually trying to relax and enjoy your life. <laughs>
Thank you.